0: Americans. This is the Urbane Cowboys podcast with Josiah Neely of R Street Institute and Doug McCullough of Lone Star Policy Institute. Good day.
1: Howdy, y'all. Welcome to the Urbane Cowboys podcast. I'm Josiah Neely of R Street Institute.
0: And I'm Doug McCullough with the Lone Star Policy Institute.
1: So there has been no shortage of news over the last weeks and months. But uh, sometimes you know, things, things have gotten to the point where major stories are crowding out other major stories. And so we wanted to talk today about what is happening, uh, particularly along the uh, border between India and China and conflict between those two countries and then what is talking going on in India generally. So to help us discuss that, we have uh abhijit Iyer mitra who is a senior fellow at the institute for peace and conflict studies so uh, abhi welcome to the program thanks for having me on josea yeah so why don't you start by just giving us a little bit about uh your background you're there in india uh So just maybe for our listeners, just a little bit about, you know, who you are and your general perspective on things.
2: Sure. So, uh, I work at a think tank in Delhi. Unfortunately, most think tanks in India are event management organizations. Thankfully the current organization that I work for is not, we actually get to do proper research, but born and brought up in India, uh, to parents who were both bureaucrats. And you know, like most former colonial countries, America is no longer a former colonial country. Uh, Bureaucrats have uh, excessive power in India. And um, so I grew up all over the place uh, in Moscow when it was still the USSR and then in Vienna and things like that. Um, And for my college, I moved off to Australia and lived there for about 12 years before returning to India. Uh, joined a think tank, uh, done lots of stints in America at uh, uh, Los Alamos, uh, sorry, at uh, Albuquerque in New Mexico with uh, the Sandia National Laboratories and yeah. then at the Simpson Center in DC. But mostly I operate out of Delhi. And politically, I'm kind of pro
1: market right. Um, yeah. Right. You're, you're, uh... Twitter account says that you're to the right of Genghis Khan, I believe. Yes, uh, I am. Because um, <laughs> in the Indian context, uh, the
2: right is so far left that uh, Lenin would pass off as a right wing reactionary in India. So uh, it's all relative, as Einstein used to say.
1: Right. Yeah, I was just going to say, I don't know what Genghis Khan thought about, uh, you know, government healthcare or anything like that. <laughs> so, so who knows? Um, okay. So th- obviously there have, you know, uh, there's been longstanding tensions and border disputes, I guess you could say between China and India uh, that have flared up periodically. Uh, sometimes even resulting in, in a war, I, I believe in, what, the, the last time the world's attention uh, was kind of distracted by major events during the Cuban Missile Crisis, uh, India and China stuck a war in there between each other. Uh, and so maybe you could just tell us a little bit about what, what is the background of the, the dispute? Why is there conflict there uh, in this border region just historically? Okay.
2: So it starts from two different points of origin. The first is the British point of origin, where they did not want clear borders on the east because they were an expansionist imperialist power. And the more vague you keep borders, the more you can annex later on, as and when it makes sense. Uh, even though they were cartographically speaking, very moderate. Uh The Chinese, on the other hand, had extremely outdated uh uh, maps and cartography of the period, and remember, we're talking about the late Qing dynasty. So the Dao, just before the Dowager Empress and all of that, when uh, really the Qing uh, uh, empire was collapsing, and all these peripheral states were kind of moving away from uh, central rule. So you have a very undefined border. And the Chinese keep going back to their old cartographically inaccurate maps and keep claiming territories all around them. So two sources of tension out there. Uh, in after the People's Republic was proclaimed in 1949, there was uh, China for a long time, you know, because India and China were good friends at the time. India was a great uh, uh, proponent of China on the world stage. Uh we didn't talk about the border. But what was happening was the Chinese were building infrastructure and roads through territory that was known to be Indian, or at least India thought it was Indian. And what happened was it finally reached a point where India had to start getting cartographic clear, uh, clarity because of lots of schemes and things, socioeconomic schemes that we wanted to implement. And that's where the trouble really starts, because we found that a lot of territory that we claimed unambiguously to be Indian, uh, inherited from the British, uh, was under Chinese uh, control at that point of time. Uh, We tried, you know, pushing it under the carpet, pushing it under the carpet. It, It was a problem right starting in 1952. Uh, our reaction, like to all security problems in India is to be like an ostrich pushing under the carpet and pretend it's going to go away. It did not. And the point of reckoning came when, uh, you know, just during the Cultural Revolution or just before it, Mao Zedong went into kind of, uh, quote unquote, retirement. And Liu Shaoqi and Zhao Enlai took over and they decided, you know, enough is enough. We need to teach India a lesson because it's getting ahead of itself. Of course, a lot of it also had to do with the disruption of the Cultural Revolution itself and this need to sort of uh, re-establish. Its, uh, China had a border problem with everyone around it. A lot of it cartographic, a lot of it ideological as well. So this was one of the things uh, they, they literally thrashed us in the war. And the amazing thing is throughout this period, India and America had the same strategic goal, which is to see to it that No one can, no one power block monopolizes Asia. In this case, the communist bloc. We wanted to play divide and rule between the Russians over, in those days, the Soviets and the Chinese, and the Americans wanted the same thing. But because we were diplomatically inept, that message never got across, or it was never put across in those terms. And it just went on getting worse and worse with the India-America relationship. So in 62, we get our butts whooped by the Chinese. And the first letter that night when the Chinese decide on a full fledged attack is to demand an alliance with America and lots of bombers and planes, the second letter turns it down and says, oh, you know, we don't want an alliance. And this is sort of the kind of sadistic schadenfreude that's been part of Indian foreign policy over and over again. The way Kennedy described it was that Mao Zedong just keeps slapping Nehru over and over again, and Nehru pretends he hasn't been slapped. Uh, And that is still the problem. Uh, Even after the clashes that happened on the 15th of June, a few days back, when 20 of our troops were killed by the Chinese, we still, you know, there was an article written by a former national security advisor that came out saying, non-alignment is good. We don't need America to solve our problems. This is the kind of self-delusion that we live under, that being a third world agrarian country, We're still a world power, even though China is, what, 10, 12, 13 times bigger than us in terms of GDP, Uh, maybe less, but it's a huge, uh, it's a huge power differential. Um,
1: So this, I just want to just establish a little bit more about uh, the nature of the disputed region there, because my understanding is this is obviously a very, it's, it's very remote rural area there's not really much there uh and are there it's not like it's not like there's oil there right if you, if you know what i mean like there's not doesn't it, correct me if i'm wrong but it doesn't seem like this is a hugely economically valuable region uh no it isn't it's uh, it, it's
2: it's just literally barren land with no economic value uh right. There, you keep getting every two years, there's always a report that I read saying massive uranium deposits found, massive gold deposits found. Nothing ever comes of it. It's just complete nonsense that the government of India just keeps putting out every now and then because there's no natural resource exploitation happening anywhere in that area.
1: Yeah, so it's, it's basically a pure, um, you know, it's a matter of... of of national sovereignty, right? I I would suppose on on both sides, as it were, uh, that you know you just don't let. Well, you know if if it's if it's yours, it's yours, right? <laughs> you know.
2: exactly. I mean, it doesn't actually have a uh, foundation in uh, natural resources or even the people's memory. The Chinese have no memory of this region. India, it's never been part of the national psyche of India because Tibet was always a very distinct cultural entity. Ladakh has always been different from Tibet in the sense, but it's been tied to that Tibetan whole, you know, the Himalayan Buddhist kingdoms like Bhutan, Sikkim. uh, uh, Ladakh was exactly like that, uh, distinct from Tibet and yet culturally very similar to Tibet. They are ruled by different sects of the same uh, Buddhist order the tibetan lamaism but you know there's the red sect and the yellow sect uh, uh, the dalai lama is the yellow sect i think ladakh is the red sect and bhutan is some other sect of all of this uh, the names are just too tough to pronounce i'm not going to pronounce them i'm sorry if that comes off as very
1: culturally insensitive but just really tough to pronounce i'm not going to criticize someone for for finding Foreign names, hard to pronounce sometimes. So. <laughs> yeah, uh, the thing is, it's it's seen
2: more about setting precedent. If China sees it as if we give up on these territorial claims, uh, what then happens to all our other territorial claims and our maritime claims and things like that? For India, it's the exact same problem. If we give up this territory what happens to all our other claims because then everybody because we've got border issues with everyone around us bangladesh has been sorted out but pakistan as you know is a huge problem Uh, sri lanka is also sorted out but it keeps coming back to what happens after this thing if you set a precedent once it can be repeated over and over again
0: so what's so i guess talk a little bit about this this idea of the line of actual control and how how different would that be then, say, uh, India's perspective of where the border is and maybe China's perspective of where the border is? I'm assuming that it's somewhere, something like a compromise where their actual control is. But we'll talk about that a little bit.
2: Yeah. So if you look at what was the state of Jammu and Kashmir, think of it as a St. Andrew's Cross. And Kashmir uh, and Ladakh would be the top right hand corner of it, at least the top right hand that's been uh taken away by China. Now, what happens in all of this is the way um, this geography plays out is it's always, there was always internal tension in Jammu and Kashmir state, which is that you had the western part, which was heavily populated, but the eastern part, which is Ladakh, that had most of the land area and they always felt discriminated against by the Kashmiris so last year we sort of bifurcated the state made it into two union territories union territories basically like say Washington DC uh, it's not a state you come on the like you know there's all those DC plates uh, that say, uh, car plates that say uh, vote uh, we don't have a vote or something like that I forget what it is a without representation that's it so it's yeah. kind of, uh, not, not exactly, they do have representation, but it's kind of like that, where they don't have a state uh, legislature uh, or a state capital, state senate or something like that. And uh, that's the way the uh, geography of this whole thing works. But it was also two very, very distinct, three distinct cultures in the former state of Jammu and Kashmir. There was, here, Ladakh is kind of half Muslim, half Buddhist, The Muslims are, again, Tibetan stock, but they are Shia. So in Kargil, for example, they follow the Twelver, the Jafri sect, which is the same as Iran. You have an Imam Khomeini square. If you go to Kargil, which is the western part of Ladakh, you will see uh, Ayatollah Khomeini, Ayatollah Khamenei. You will see uh, Qasem Soleimani, you know, the head of the IRGC that got killed a few months back. Uh, You'll see all of their posters up there. And uh, the east of that is very, very Buddhist in that sense. So that's kind of the lay of the land. Is there anything else you want to know about it?
0: Well, I also saw that as I was reading up about this skirmish, that uh, this area around the this line of actual control, the, the, uh, the contested area, that... The, both sides, that China and India have agreed that there won't be any uh, weapons, there won't be any guns, won't be any explosives, and that the most recent skirmish was actually it sounds Stone Age—clubs, uh, stones, clubs with nails in them. Talk about that! What's how did how did how did that come to be? Because I mean that's a it's an interesting. It's, <laughs> Interesting rules of engagement. How did that a- agreement come to come to be?
2: So what the LNC is, is that there are two Chinese claim lines. Uh, the first is further to the east. It's called the 1959 claim line. That's when China formally claimed that right-hand top of the St. Andrew's Cross, and they'd already settled down there. And then there was the 1961 claim line, which was something like 20 to 40 kilometers, depending on which part of the border it was, it was 20 to 40 kilometers further west from the 1959 claim line, which just shows you how concocted the Chinese maps are in that sense. They just keep making this up as they go along kind of thing, right? Now, when uh, the war started in 1962, uh, the 1959 line was where they already were. The 1961 line is where they came up and then unilaterally declared a ceasefire. Uh, That has become the line of actual control. Neither country demarcates it on maps because it's kind of like a negotiating position. When you go in for final status settlement, they want the room to gain more territory, so neither country marks it out on maps. In fact, our soldiers who patrol out there aren't given the maps because just in case they get... uh, you know, uh, captured or something, the maps will fall into their hands and they'll know what our claim area is. So it kind of suits everybody to not put it down on the map at the moment, uh, which leads to a lot of confusion again. Uh, the weapons agreement, now, it, it it was always
1: a lethal border right well, up to 1970. Can, can, can I just go yes. back for a second? Because you said, so they can't have maps because if they're captured by the enemy, the enemy would find out with the what the claim area was? Exactly, yeah. I mean, why would you not want the enemy to know what land you're, or the Chinese to know what land you're you're claiming? Because
2: it's an unsettled border. And once you publish an official map, uh, it's seen as, in cartographic legal terms, it's seen both as accepting the border lies somewhere, number one, And number two, it gives away your negotiating position, that you believe this is what it is. I'm not saying that this is what it actually is, but this is the Indian government's belief. It is also the Chinese government's belief, which is why the rudimentary maps that our boys get, they are always fudged and doctored with, and they keep getting given different maps every time, so that even if they get captured and tortured or something like that, uh, they will just giving jumbled
1: information that does not make sense. Yeah. So, so
2: it's actually even more complicated.
1: Yeah, so it, it's it's not simply that China and India disagree about where the border is, mm. but uh to some extent China and India themselves won't say exactly where the border is, right? Because
2: Correct. Uh, it's important here to separate border from line of action control. China has its version of where the international border is, which is about 100 or so kilometers inside Indian Territory. Uh, India has its own definition of the international border, which is is the only thing you're allowed to publish on uh, official maps. It's a crime to publish anything in India that does not show uh, the Indian claim line as it is out there. The line of actual control, though, is a ceasefire line, which neither side wants to demarcate okay so it's, it's somewhere between each person's claimed international border more to the advantage of the chinese than it is in the advantage of india
0: right you know from a from a negotiating perspective you know as in my day job as an attorney we often have conversations with clients talking about issues that are really important to us and others that we say, this is a hill that I'm not willing to die on. And in this situation, that's very literal. (laughs) If you actually have, you know, a a map that you've given to your soldiers that you've indicated, this is a, this is a hill. This is an area that we're willing to militarily defend. And that falls into enemy's hands. Then that really does change the, the, uh, that really arms the enemy with information about, what you're willing to defend and what you're willing to basically allow them to just aggressively take. So I can see from a negotiating perspective, that's very important.
2: Yeah. Uh, Coming to the weapons out there, we are actually allowed to carry weapons, but we carry our guns facing down with the magazines removed. And uh, because ever since Mao Zedong died, the last lethal clash on that border was in 1975. Uh, Mao Zedong died in 1976 and since then it's been an absolutely peaceful border for 45 years. Peaceful in the sense no lethality. Because we developed protocols to deal with it and we don't shoot, we keep our magazines detached. However, we do pelt stones at each other, sharp stones, uh, not so sharp stones depending on where you are. Uh, Because it's a volcanic area where you get sharp stones and then there is uh, lots of riverbeds where you get these smooth pebbles. They both hurt like hell. I can tell you having lived there for a while, Mm -hmm. they both hurt like hell. And we have baseball or cricket bats that we use to beat each other up. And sometimes, very frequently, we wrap up these baseball or cricket bats with barbed wire or we stunt them with nails. They do result in injuries, bad injuries at times, but so far no deaths. So what happened on the 15th of June was pretty much a freak accident where we believed that 40, 45-year-old protocols would continue being relevant when they clearly weren't. And from what I'm hearing, there was firing because people did mate their guns in their magazines when too many people started dying and they did fire.
1: You know, uh, Einstein once said that uh, he didn't know how world war three would start but he thought that world war four would be fought with sticks and stones <laughs> i don't believe this is exactly what you had in mind uh but i presume the purpose of these protocols of not using weapons is that you have you know two massive countries both nuclear powers and you don't want it to you don't want a conflict to escalate uh, into, into uh, something broader. Is that, is that kind of the general idea there? That That was always the idea out there,
2: except we don't know exactly how this escalated and became so bad. We do have satellite imagery evidence of some kind of a landslide out there. What we suspect happened was two or three people went down in the landslide and died. And once somebody dies, it doesn't matter how they died. Once they die, you never back off because that's kind of encouraging the enemy. And then it became this huge brawl. And we went in in about three different sorties to bash them up, beat them up. Uh, As I understand it, we went in to destroy or try to destroy a dam on their side. Uh, They had blocked this river called the Galwan. Uh, It isn't a very big river, but it is about the legal consequences. See, China as for the last 20-30 years said that as an upper riparian power for all of South Asia and Southeast Asia, because it runs all the way from the Indus to the Mekong, uh, they've said that they're not going to weaponize water. They're also not going to divert the water. And Tibet's water is for all the lower riparian countries. And They've built a lot of dams, but these dams are run-of-the-mill hydroelectric dams. They're not water storage and water diversion dams. And yet what we saw in Galwan was they actually stopped the flow of water, which was very, very threatening for us because most of our northern rivers, it's called the Indo-Gangetic Plains, the Indus and the Ganges, uh, Pakistan and India, it's a, it's a continuous plain. Uh depends on rivers that get fed by the snow melt in the Himalayas. And that was particularly worrying for us, which is why we went apparently to break this dam down. We initially insisted that they dismantle it and return to status quo ante. They refused and then we went in and then things escalated. Uh, It is important we did that because I think it's the first time in about, what, 40, 50 years that we've actually stood up for ourselves and said enough is enough. Otherwise, they just keep pushing us around and we just keep taking it and pretending nothing happened. So it is important because it also casts a lot of doubt on this Chinese strategy of, you know, managed calibration, that they'll keep pushing you, they'll never kill you, but they'll just keep pushing you, pushing you, pushing you and get what they want. And here, both by dying and by killing, we kind of said, you know, basta, enough is enough.
1: <laughs> it's a very good uh, good Italian uh, uh, Indian cultural exchange there. Um, so I mean where do you well, let me ask let me ask this. Why do you think that because it does seem that there has been uh, an escalation recently on the Chinese side. Uh, and you can tell me whether you think that's accurate or not. And if so, what do you think is driving that? Do you think, you know, obviously the in the background of all this has been the coronavirus pandemic, which was in China first, uh, and then that seemed to have died down more recently. There seems to be maybe a, a second wave in Beijing, I don't know, uh, India at first. Uh, somewhat mysteriously to some, there did not seem to be much spread of the virus. More recently, uh, there there has been, there have been lockdowns there. And of course, in, in the West, we're very preoccupied by other things. Um, I mean, it, do you think that that is playing a role here or not? Yeah,
2: but it's not monocausal. It's important to remember that. I think the need for China to divert attention from its criticism of COVID, uh, uh, you know, lying about it uh, or, or whatever, is one factor in it. But also the weakness of all the surrounding countries because they're dealing with it is another factor in it. The third and perhaps the most important factor that spurred this particular round on was the fact that for, uh, for the last 70 years since independence, We've been a very ground because remember, we're still a third world agrarian country. Like all third world agrarian countries, our military doctrines are very ground centric. We haven't moved to the air centric war fighting paradigms of the West. So, you know, the way you view infrastructure is very different. For a ground planner, infrastructure is dangerous. Building up infrastructure on your border is essentially building a road for the Chinese to come invade you through. On the other hand, if you're an air planner, and your forces are mostly air-centric. Uh, building infrastructure on the border is a brilliant idea because you're corralling all the Chinese tanks into a narrow road, turning it into a turkey chute. And, uh, you know, every single piece of infrastructure that comes up is a glorious little aim point where forces are concentrated and you could just bomb it during the time of war. Uh, this was a problem when America went into Afghanistan because it was so completely ruined, they didn't know where the aim points were uh the second issue here is we also have a huge air advantage compared to uh china in the region because the tibet plateau is about 15000 feet high there's massive uh, uh weight and range penalties on planes taking off from there whereas our side is much quicker to reach uh, it's uh, it's just a thousand feet high so it's it, it, but for a long time And we still haven't moved to an air-centric paradigm of war. It's always been very ground-centric, so we never built up infrastructure out there. We were always consumed by the fact that it was ground war, ground war, ground war. In 1962, when we had an air advantage over the Chinese, we refused to use it because we thought air power was escalatory. And this is very different between America and India. In America, air power is the least escalatory option, whereas boots on the ground, as it's called, is the most escalatory option. For India, it's the reverse. Boots on the ground is the least escalatory option. Air power is the most escalatory option. So there was was a whole, you know, a lot of things that went into this uh, that did not build up infrastructure. But then somehow when this government won the re-election in May 2019, they decided that you know, enough is enough. We're going to build up infrastructure and the infrastructure they have been building is enormous. It really does match up to what the Chinese have been doing on their side. It's like these beautiful new double lane highways, massive. They're these Austrian and Swiss companies that have got lots of contracts to build tunnels through the mountain, like the Gotthard Pass and all of that in Switzerland that you have. Uh, They're building fabulous stuff out there. And this was the other problem that China had. Because like you know, possession is nine-tenths of the law. Uh, I don't know if that's the case in America. In India, it still is. This is why land grabbing is so common out here. But uh, what happens is that we used to measure control by patrols. If border patrols managed to go there, we'd say it's ours. The Chinese stopped that a long time back. Since 1990, they've been building fantastic infrastructure and creeping into land. We finally said, you know what, let's start. Last year, we finally said, let's start and build uh, infrastructure. That did not go down well with the Chinese. There's another thing, which was the abrogation of the special status of Kashmir, the state of Kashmir and bifurcation. Because the same thing happened in 1986. You know, in the Far East... China claims the Indian state of Arunachal Pradesh in its entirety. And they were quiet up to the point that we declared that it was a full state in India with its own state legislature and its own elections and things. And that led to a brief little uh, violent episode in the East in 1986, 87. We declared it a state in 86. It had consequences in 87. We're seeing a repeat of the same thing, though this time very violent in Ladakh, which we declared was a union territory, but the Chinese have seen it as some kind of a status change and gotten violent over that. So, like I said, not monocausality, multi causality, lots of things happen.
0: So, one of the, uh, I guess, comments I've seen a few people make, um, you know, here in the West, looking at the situation between China and India is uh, I don't know if you want to call it fear mongering, but sort of trying to bring attention to the fact that there is this conflict while we're sort of already so, uh, you know, so focused on COVID news and the recent uh, race protests here. And so to, to try to bring attention to it, uh, I guess you could say the hype is uh, this is a, you know, there's a border skirmish and, you know, there's been soldiers killed between two nuclear powers. But, I wanted to get your perspective on this. The fact that there are two nuclear powers involved, does that heighten the risk here? Or does this in some ways actually maybe calm the situation down? You know, you have sort of these rules of engagement is because both power, because both countries have nuclear capabilities. Does that maybe keep both countries somewhat in check? What's your perspective on that?
2: Um, so, you know, this, um, in Asia, nuclear deterrence has never been the way nuclear deterrence was between the USA and the USSR. Uh, you guys shared a sort of border on the Bering Straits uh, between Alaska and Siberia, uh, Alaska and Kamchatka, and yet that was never really the point of tension. It was always the Fulda Gap and the European Front that was the point of tension. With us, we have never really had that. Uh, for us, the point of tension has always been the direct border. And remember, India is a nuclear country that has had uh, that has fought two wars with two countries that are both nuclear powers, Pakistan and uh, China. And in that sense, we're almost inured to the fact that wars can in fact be fought, that you can fight a conventional war, with a country, even though both countries have nuclear weapons. And mostly it's Pakistan that started off this trend. When we both went officially nuclear in 1998, uh, Pakistan came in in a region called Kargil. That was also part of Ladakh. Uh, It's the Muslim part, the Shia part of Ladakh that we spoke about. And they squatted on the heights and were shelling our trucks and things going below. So that resulted in a war. Uh, It was a full-fledged war. We used our fighters. They used their fighters and all of that. Just recently, last year, we sent a few Mirage 2000s deep inside Pakistan to bomb a terrorist camp. So uh, this concept of nuclear deterrence is very different in South Asia. There's this belief that you can fight a limited conventional war under the nuclear umbrella. Uh, For me, that's alarming. Because I'm very occidentally trained. I'm not orientally trained in that sense. So for me, it's always every time something like this happens, I start panicking. But everybody in Delhi is perfectly calm about it. Uh, it, It's almost surreal in that sense. But there's no belief that it either prevents war or enables war. It sort of just exists. Nuclear weapons just exist in the background.
1: Let's talk a little bit about kind of China's broader strategic perspective, because as you had said, uh, traditionally, back during the Cold War, India, they wanted to be kind of not neutral or not aligned, right? Uh, not, certainly not allied with the United States.
2: Yeah.
1: Now, of course, we're in a very different situation where you have a rising... China uh the Soviet Union is gone America is was once the world you know it's no was once the world's sole superpower now having its own struggles what what kind of and of, and internally you have a new situation as well in that whereas for many many decades india was governed and dominated by the congress party uh now you have uh with modi it seems like there's been a turn um in a very different direction uh potentially so what is what what is kind of the changing strategic perspective of india and what how do they how do they see themselves fitting into kind of the world stage or system of alliances or anything like that
2: right so uh you have to look at phases in that sense the BJP is not very different from the congress they're still economically very socialist very anti-business and increasingly they've also become very uh anti-america in that sense uh not anti-america but definitely not pro-america either uh What you had through the 50s and 60s was this sort of uh, diffidence against the white man that a newly freed state would have. And it was a fantastic, when you're a governance deficit state, you know, blaming uh, Britain and America for everything made perfect sense, right? Uh, You tended to be socialist and all of that. The real problem starts in the 70s when Indira Gandhi becomes a lot more authoritarian. And she declared the emergency, which was, it's not martial law, but it was the suspension of constitutional rights for a period of three years. And during this period, she struck a deal with leftists, with communists, really, that they would get control of all the academic institutions in the country. Uh, it was kind of a sop given to the Soviet Union, because that's also when India and the USSR signed their Treaty of Friendship. Uh, it was about seven years earlier, in 1971, during the Bangladesh Liberation War. Uh, And since then, what you've seen is a complete sort of communist hijack of academia in India. It's been very, very strong. It's been very cartelized. Uh, Basically, uh, any opinion that does not suit the uh, sort of uh, class warfare theory narrative of history is weeded out and pushed out legitimized kicked out and all of that Uh, and a lot of it is of course jargon you have a a lot of mumbo jumbo going around uh, masquerading around a scholarship Uh, but the issue has been that through this sort of capture of the educational institution it's also been a full-on sort of communist capture of the mind space in India Uh, All your universities that feed into the diplomatic service, into the bureaucratic service, into the military higher education, are very, very indoctrinated in these whole uh, sort of Soviet communist schools of thought in that sense. So there's fundamentally a huge, huge left-wing bias. In the 60s, in the 50s, 60s and 70s, you had a clear difference in ideologies. Uh, You had... The ruling Congress party, which was for land reforms. We didn't have land reforms. We had tenancy reforms and it destroyed agriculture like it did in Zimbabwe. Uh, But uh, we're not going to get into that. And on the other hand, you had parties that were very clearly pro-market, pro-personal freedoms, pro-property, anti-socialism and all of that. Today, that distinction simply does not exist. One of the reasons that Modi and the BJP have become so absolutely... Uh, dominating over the political scene in India is because they were the only right-wing party, but they moved so far left economically that the left space is now squeezed into almost nothingness. So you have the Congress, which increasingly sounds like an NGO. They don't sound like a government organization. They sound like a non-government organization. Now, governments are meant to take big-picture approaches And fix things overall, whereas NGOs are meant to focus on, you know, uh, plugging the uh, gaps kind of thing. That doesn't happen. So you have this grand old party of India, which is basically turned into a little sloganeering event shop in that sense, which people don't take seriously anymore. But the thoughts, it's almost like one of those horror movies. Did you see that horror movie Get Out? where you know the spirit of one person goes into another person kind of thing. It's like that. It's the spirit of the Congress has now shifted to the BJP and it's just more of the same thing with a different name these days.
1: I would like to ask a little bit, uh, since coronavirus is on everybody's mind, uh, what your perspective is on the situation there in India. Um, I was... Looking at the, you know, some of the 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 data now, uh, India I think is now uh, number four in the world in terms of cases. Obviously, it's a big country, uh, and uh, seems to be still kind of increasing there. Uh, so, what what is the situation there with the with the coronavirus?
2: Um, it's not good. So what happened was initially when we announced our full-on lockdown, we never. Uh, uh, sadly, in India, policy we only think of the first-order effects. We don't think through the second, third, and fourth-order effects of policy. And what then happens is you announce lockdown like you know a surprise event, no preparation for it, where people millions of people got caught away from their homes with no way of going back. And then we had our own super spreader event. In Italy, the super spreader event was this bunch of tourists that went skiing up north and they infected everything up north, which is why the northern fatality rates were so much more than the uh, southern provinces of Italy. Here, it was something called the Tabugi Jamaat, which are a sort of fundamentalist Islamic uh, 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 madrasa group And uh, they they were holding international conference. And in the initial stages of the lockdown, we actually saw that we were flattening the curve. Then what happened was this Tablighi Jamaat folks started uh, violating all the lockdown and everything. And that was the first shock the flattening of the curve got. But then you had the migrant workers and people stranded away from home that tried to get home as well. And basically, it destroyed the whole effect of the lockdown. So we got the worst of the lockdown, which has probably set our economy back by about 10 to 15 years at least, because we never think through our economic plans very well. And now what we've done is we've ended lockdown and started opening up things in a gradual phased manner. So we're also getting the worst of herd immunity now. The good thing, though, is that India has never been a quality medical uh, health care system. It's always been a quantity system. You don't go to the doctor till, you know, something really, really bad happens to you. So what happened here is our entire medical system is meant to deal with millions upon millions of people getting sick. It's not overwhelming the system, but there's a high likelihood that it will, be given the lifting of the coronavirus restrictions. At the same time, if you compare Portugal and Spain, you know Portugal has the compulsory BCG vaccine, the anti-tuberculosis vaccines, and Spain does not. And Spain has had a much much higher infection and mortality rate than uh, uh, than Portugal has. With India, we uh, have compulsory BCG vaccines, but we lose between two to four hundred thousand people every year to tuberculosis. Two hundred thousand to four hundred thousand Indians die. Every year from tuberculosis, and it gives you—we've built up almost a sort of herd immunity to, respir, uh, to respiratory diseases, uh, and absorb the shock as well. That's the amazing thing. I mean, if you can deal with two hundred to four hundred thousand people dying a year of something unnatural, we lose about what a hundred thousand people to road accidents every year. So this. <laughs> lockdown was more damaging to the economy than the lifting of lockdown is going to be, even though it's not going to be very nice.
1: Yeah. Well, if it makes you feel any better, uh, America, we seem to have made some of the same mistakes in terms of lockdown and then uh, getting rid of it before suppression and it coming back and uh, where we are right now in Texas, maybe one of the epicenters of the second wave, uh, who knows, but um, it doesn't make, that doesn't make me feel any better, but (laughs) (laughs) look,
2: you, you have a great tradition of freedom of expression and movement. In India, we don't, so I, I don't know if it could have been sustained in America for much longer uh, before the Supreme Court kind of came in and said, you know what, lift all these restrictions now. In India, we've kind of, um, let's just say freedom of expression is sort of a negotiable in India. <laughs>
1: so
2: uh, it's, it, it, it's, we, we've always had reasonably strong protections for freedom of expression in urban areas and almost no freedom of expression in rural areas. We live in two centuries. In villages in India, you will still have pogroms uh, and things like that. In urban cities, urban centers, you won't. It's, uh, it's not very clean, but it's at least quite civilized in terms of the mindset. So uh, lockdown or no lockdown doesn't actually... It it, it 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 was legally tenable in india that's the thing
1: yeah all right well i think we'll end it there uh, abby thank you very much for joining us
2: thank you doug thank you josea for having me on this was fun i hope i hope i wasn't too rambling and boring
1: <laughs> no no never
0: Thank you for joining us today. If you enjoyed today's show, we ask that you would subscribe, leave favorable reviews, and tell your friends to tune in to the Urban Cowboys.